During the week, some of you might say, I sent out a WhatsApp to our church group in which I went all Pentecostal on you and said, can I get an amen? And it was the quote that Ty's going to put up on the screen now, from Max Lacano, said, our prayers may be awkward, our attempts may be feeble, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference. And that just resonated with me because I've got to admit that I've kind of wrestled with prayer quite a bit over the last few weeks. You know, there have been a few occasions where I've had really positive answers to prayer, sometimes even instantly, on things which, in the grand scheme of things, were very minor and I probably wouldn't have prayed about at all. And there's no way I could prove that my prayers made any difference, but I believed enough to draw some encouragement from it. But then there's the big stuff, stuff on the news, the effects of climate change, the devastation caused last week by an earthquake in Haiti, the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, and all of that against the backdrop of a global pandemic. And there I have to admit, I've struggled with prayer a bit. My prayers do feel awkward and feeble. And I'm not really sure what or how sometimes I should pray. Lord, have mercy sometimes is as much as I can manage. It's one of the basic yet troubling theological questions which as Christians we face sometimes. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, how can this world be as it is? And it's only a problem if you really believe in a particular type of God. Because if you're an atheist, yeah, it's sad, all the trouble in the world, and you could well be motivated to do something about it. But the kind of deeper why questions, they're kind of less of a problem. The world is as it is. It's this stage in evolution. It doesn't need explanation. Or in some faith, with many gods, those gods themselves are a mix of good or evil, so why would the world be any different? But if you cast your mind back a few weeks, you might remember that I've spent a few weeks talking about a very particular type of God. And I've been asking a very basic question. What is God like? And from the Christian perspective, I've said we believe in a God who created us for a relationship. We believe our God wants to be known. We believe our God has decisively revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Different parts of our Bible speak of Jesus as the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the visible image of the invisible God. And I've been arguing, if you really want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. God is Christ-like. And I've summed it up in this mantra, which is coming up on the screen now. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. And God always will be like Jesus. And I've argued the driving force or impulse behind all that God does is love. God operates through love, not through forcing his will on us through coercion. He seeks to draw us to himself rather than force his will on us. And if you believe in that kind of God, those why questions become more of a challenge. Because surely if this God's all-powerful, he could do something to stop it. And if he was all loving, he'd want to. But he doesn't. 
So is it just that he's not able, or does he just not care? And up until now, I've said the kind of what is God like type questions important because they shape the kind of people we become. Because if you believe in a vindictive, angry, judgmental God, it's easy to kind of justify yourself being vindictive and angry and judgmental. But if you truly believe in a loving, gracious, heavenly father type God, that should lead you to want to be a different type of person. So over the next couple of questions, I want to look at a slightly different question, which is, what good is a more Christ-like God? What good is a more Christ-like God? You see, there are times that a God who draws us with love rather than imposes his will on us seems less attractive. We might want them just to get on and do something. And this morning I'm going to be talking a lot about a God who operates by consent. A God who lays aside power. And we might be stepping and say, well, what's the point in that? And such a God might be take us back a few weeks to those sort of false images of God I talked about a few weeks ago about the doting grandparent or the absent parent, you know, that kind of overlooks my bad behaviour or says, oh, it doesn't matter, or it simply can't do anything. And when you use words like consent, it's, it's, it can sound like God just allows everything to happen. Like one of those parents who said, oh, stop that. And yet you know that, and they, you know, they know, and their child knows that their words are having absolutely no authority or impact on them. And we might think, what's the point of God like that? What's the point in praying to a God like that? And if that is what God's like, and if such a God is for us, the answer to Paul's rhetorical question, who can be against us, takes on a very different tone. How can such a God it just stands back. Make us more than conquerors through trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Let alone death, life, angels, demons, present, future, any powers, height or depth, nor anything else in all creation. So how can we think of God as being active and sovereign in his world and yet still not controlling and coercive and still loving, interested and involved? Holding a lot of things together. So at the outset, I want to highlight that I'm not just talking about consent in the sense of just allowing things to go unchecked. When I'm talking about this Christ-like God, we're not thinking about a God who's uninvolved and distant, but one who mucks in with us. One who acts decisively and yet acts in love. Last time I introduced you to another, uh, to an important Greek word, and it was this word here, kenosis. It means emptied out. And I took you to an early Christian hymn which spoke of Jesus setting aside all the trappings of divinity, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, taking on vulnerable flesh, being obedient to God all the way to death on a cross. And the thing is, when people read that passage, uh, well, when they speak about it, it's like it was something Jesus did briefly for about 33 years, after which he went back to being more obviously godly. But I want to argue with this this morning that it's actually more central to who God is and how God works in the world. That, that, that kenosis is one of the ways in which God has always been like Jesus and always will be. 
Let me offer you an example as a witness. A confession to begin with. I am not very good at delegation. Oh yeah, there are some things I'm quite happy to delegate. For example, many aspects of DIY. I know it's likely to end in disaster and or injury. Not to mention a very hefty bill, so I happily give that away. And Jules might, quite fairly I add, say that I'm happy to delegate the hoovering. But that's another story. But overall, I'm not that great at delegating. And you don't have to know me all that well to know that. If you watch a few of our live streams with me, we're trying to operate several pieces of technology all at once, sometimes more effectively than others. You'll kind of get that impression. And a lovely lady who knows me from way back dropped me an email a couple of weeks ago and said, could you not get someone else to do some of that stuff? <laughs> and in my defence, that's largely been as much about me not knowing how this stuff works. Uh, I'm trying to work out enough that I can pass it on and I've been really really grateful for Leanne's help in the last couple of weeks and I'm really really grateful this morning for Ty's help but it kind of involves me relinquishing control I have to allow them just to get on with it and there's something of that in a much grander scale when God creates the world we are utterly dependent on God for our existence but God isn't micromanaging every detail. God, in many ways, when he creates the world, he steps out of the way and allows the world to grow, to develop. God is the ultimate source of all that is, but he allows what we might call secondary causes to have their way in the world. And I want to briefly suggest to you three forces that are at work in our world. Two of them will be fairly obvious, when I explain them, the third lesson, but it's the third one that's absolutely vital. So the first one is natural laws. For example, gravity. What goes up must come down. We live in a world which is, by and large, predictable. We derive meaning and understanding by spotting patterns and giving them some sense of meaning and then using those to be able to predict what will happen if we do the next thing. And we rely on this in all sorts of ways. You put a certain type of fuel in your car so that it will go. You press the accelerator and the car speeds up. You press the brake and it slows down. Imagine it just shows at random what it was going to do when you press those buttons. Or we go to the doctor, we describe a number of symptoms and the doctor who is trained to spot those patterns suggests how we might get relief from those symptoms or get well again. And if our world wasn't to a certain extent predictable, life would be unlivable. Gravity is necessary for our survival, but if you step off the roof of a tall building, There'll be, be inevitable consequences to that. And tectonic plates shift, weather and patterns come and go, and God's not interfering with each and every one of them. But that's not the only force at work in the world. There's also human 
freedom. We can know the right thing to do, but that doesn't mean we'll actually do it. We can, and all too often do, choose to do the wrong thing. And God created us to live and thrive in a particular way, but if we reject that, we can bring pain upon ourselves, on others, and our world. And both of those elements are there in that opening narrative of creation in Genesis. God commands the earth to produce all kinds of plants and animals. He gives the fish, the birds, and the animals the charge to fill the whole earth. He's not making each individual fish. He's sending them off to do it. The world is described as good, not perfect. It is not complete. It is growing, it's developing, it's evolving. And then into that mix, God places people who are charged with more than procreation. They're charged to care for and subdue the earth. So even before the fall, even before Man's place, woman's placed in the garden. There are natural processes at work in the world. But they need to be managed. Think about your garden. Left to itself. Never do anything. Doesn't take long before it grows wild. Becomes all manageable. So creation left to itself would become unmanageable just by being what it is. And part of God's placing his image in us was God handing over the nurture and management of the world to us. But there's also human... So, so, so basically there's a story, there's the natural forces, but there was also human freedom. We could choose to do that as God intended, or we could choose not to. And God did not coerce us. In the very act of creation, God was releasing, emptying himself out of the God of evil and handing over control. Natural laws and human freedom were allowed to operate because God isn't in the business of coercive control. And so, right down to the present day, someone chooses to drive a car really fast, whilst drunk, on an icy night. And it can have disastrous consequences. Natural laws such as how our bodies react to alcohol, and ice being slipping, and human choice to drink too much, and then to drive, and to drive without proper care, that can lead to tragedy. But there's more going on. It's not just a case of my actions affect me. Nobody is an island. The world is way more mysterious than we realise. And we get both of those coming together in another incident in the Bible. Um, in the life of Jesus this time. You know, in Luke 13, some people came to Jesus and they told him about some Galileans who had been slaughtered by Pilate whilst offering sacrifices. And Jesus says, do you really think that that happened to them because they were particularly bad? No, of course not. 
And then he adds, there were those people in Siloam who were killed when the tower fell on them. Do you think that happened because they were particularly bad? No, of course not. And people have tried to identify specific instances Jesus was talking about. But the truth is here that we see some fall victim to natural forces and others to human evil. And they have disastrous consequences. They can be good or they can be bad. And if those two forces were the only forces at work, we would be hopeless. We would be at the mercy of trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In fact, we'd be at the mercy of pretty much all of creation. But they're not the only forces at work. There's a third one. And that is grace. Natural laws and human freedom have their place in the world. But God doesn't abandon us to them. God doesn't remain distant, uninvolved, passive. God acts decisively in love. We are not simply abandoned to our feet. In Jesus, God enters into our world and participates in the human condition. He enters our affliction. God heard our groans and came down to suffer and to die with us, to overcome affliction and defeat death. God in love, just as he placed his creation into the hands of, of, of itself, God places himself into the hands of a hostile world and to hateful men. He bears the full weight of natural laws and human freedom. He allows them to take Jesus all the way to the cross and to the grave. But Jesus isn't a mere victim. He says it himself. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. He shows his father's love by laying it down through his own self-giving love. On the cross, Jesus gathers up and suffers every disaster and sin. He takes it all into his body. He enters into the suffering and experiences and the anguish. And he lives the sorrow for all, of all, with all, for all time. In grace, God doesn't abandon us even as we reject him. Instead, God takes our rejection of him, places himself into our hands. And by offering himself for our sake, he allows those forces to play out and overcomes them all and wins our salvation. It's no wonder that Paul told the Corinthians that that plan seemed like weakness or foolishness. Because that's been almost done. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, a king who dies on a cross must be the king of a very strange kingdom. There's a story in three of our Gospels in which Jesus takes three disciples up a mountain where he's transfigured before them. And it's there they get a glimpse of the briefest of moments of who Jesus really is. But then he tells them some noises. Don't tell anyone about this until I've risen from the dead. Why? Well, there are probably lots of reasons. But here's an important one. Because transfiguration is something that anyone can understand. 
It wouldn't challenge anybody's suppositions about what a God or the supernatural was supposed to look like. What we really need faith to see is this. That the dead Jesus, forgotten and abandoned, naked and hanging on a cross, is truly the love of God incarnate. In the wounding of his fragile being, that's where we see the fullness of the divine glory. We do our worst. And God is still not ashamed to be our God. Now there is more to this and we'll pick it up again next week. But it does give us hope in a world which seems wildly out of control. Yes, we live in a world of natural laws and human freedom. And with both can come great blessing, but also cause come great sorrow. And they do cause great pain and sorrow, and we should not belittle that. But God hasn't abandoned us to them. We are not left alone. There's a third force in the world. The grace of God, who has been there before us, gone before us and overcome for us. And with this God for us, nothing can be against us because he's overcome. You know, the world can and has done its worst to us. But God has the final word. God becomes the world's true king. Not through force, but in Jesus laying aside power. Yielding to his Father's will, placing himself in God's hands, and mediating God's redeeming love for the world. He faces down the worst that this world can throw at him, and rises triumphant over it. Because God's love held him and brought him through. He went there before us to prepare the way so that when we face the worst in life, he can bring us through. And because of Jesus, we know nothing is able to separate us from the love of God. For we're loved with a love that even outlasts and overcomes death. Grace and peace be with you. Amen.